First Peter chapter 4, we're getting to the end of the book. And then Peter's going to show us this morning that we're getting to the end of either your life or the return of Jesus Christ. And we talked about last week how one of the things, because of Christ's suffering, which has been a prominent theme throughout this whole book, that Christ suffered and that you and I are going to suffer and that Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so then we not only suffer on his behalf and because of him, but we also submit to him. So remember, suffering and submission have been two of the major themes. But as we looked at the suffering of Christ last week, we see that we are going to suffer in the same way, right? And then Peter tells us that through our suffering, that we're to learn to not revert back to the old ways of our life, right? Which is before Christ, before we were new creations, before our hearts, our minds were changed and, you know, we were led astray by the things of the world and the things of our flesh, right? He says, don't revert back to those things. You spent enough time, he says in verse 3, enough of your past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Now, again, we talked about how last week, yes, I'm speaking to a bunch of young people, right? I'm not speaking to a 50-year-old man who got saved when they were 40 and spent 40 years trying to find his own way, right? And dabbling and doing and doing things. Now, for you, it's relative. It doesn't matter that if you got saved at 12, 13, 14, you have already spent enough of your past time in sin. And now he's calling us to a holiness, that we're not to walk, as he says in verse 3, in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He says, in regards to these things, once you stop partaking in those things, the people around you are going to notice right? Whether you've, you've stopped doing it or you don't continue into doing it, even in the midst of your friends here in this room, because I know you guys aren't perfect. You guys know I know that? I know that you guys do some pretty dumb stuff throughout the week. I hear things, right? I see things. I know things. I don't know all things, but I do hear things, right? And so I know sometimes you're pressured uh, into doing things or things happen, even in the midst of people that you might consider Christians, But you have to stick to the foundation of the word of God, which is the truth. You have to stick to your morals. You have to stick to the holiness of Christ, even if others don't do so. Even if it's others that you thought or think are also followers of Jesus Christ. But if they are walking in the lewdness and the way of the Gentiles, then you are not to partake in it. And what's going to happen when you don't do that, when you don't partake in it, he says in verse 4, they're going to think that it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. And, w- and remember, we talked about flood of dissipation. What did that mean? Because we don't use that in our everyday vocabulary. Flood of dissipation means wastefulness. It's wastefulness. Right? A lot of the things that we used to run after, and sometimes even run after now, and a lot of things the world runs after, is wasteful. There's really nothing in it right but the things of god are not they're not temporal but they're eternal right there's an eternal value and eternal weight to it and sometimes we don't see it that way right we we get stuck in you know trying to better our lives here on earth when peter has been telling us throughout the whole scripture that it's not about this life it's about the next life right you're not going to live your best life now hence you're going to suffer right Suffering is not going to be your best life now, 
but you have a living hope, right, which we learned in 1 Peter 1, of the inheritance that we're going to receive once we're with Jesus in heaven. So they're going to think it's strange, you know, that you're going to say no to doing this, or you're not going to partake in doing this, or you're not going to go there with this person. They're going to think that you are strange, and let them think that you are strange. And he says they're going to speak evil of you. Let them speak evil of you. What should your response be when they do that? To find a witty comeback? (laughs) That would be on my mind, right? Like, I would probably want to. But what does Peter say when somebody speaks evil of you? What should you do? We studied this in chapter 3 in verse 9, if you want to look at the answer. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, what? You can talk. You're allowed to talk. Blessing. Okay, thank you, leaders. Blessing. On the contrary, blessing. Know that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You may inherit a blessing. How do I get to the point where somebody is speaking evil of me and I don't respond in a sarcastic or witty or even a hurtful way of of responding in an evil way? How do I do that? How do I respond in in a kind and gentle, and how do I respond by blessing? How do I do that? Is it a matter of choice? Do I just decide at, a, at that moment that, well, I'm not going to do this? You, do we think that's how it works? Like, how does it work? Like, genuinely, I'm sure that's probably the question that we have. I think, in essence, it's the Holy Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, naturally, your responses are going to be like the Spirit of God, right? It's, it's not so much a matter of choice apart from the Holy Spirit. I think it's a matter of choice with the Holy Spirit, and you choose to do what the word has said, to return as a blessing. So they're going to speak evil of you because you're not partaking in the same way, right? And what happens often is they're going to speak evil of you, whether they're your friends or not, and what's the reason behind that? Why are they going to speak evil of you? Because they're convicted, right? They're convicted that they probably know what they're doing is wrong, And when you stand up to not do it, and you stand up for what is right, darkness doesn't like light, right? Darkness doesn't want itself to be revealed, and the only way to reveal that is through the light. And so, that's why they speak evil of you. And I'm sure some of us have even been in that, the other part of it, where we have speaking evil of somebody because they have stood up for what is morally right and correct, and it just irked us the wrong way, right? Because it's the light that's shining on the darkness. So, we don't revert back to the way that we once were, but we, we, we move forward and we prepare for the end to come. Okay, and this is where Peter's getting at in these, in these few verses in 7 through 11. So let's read it and let's talk about it. Peter says in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever 
Amen. Listen, the first thing that Peter says, he says that the end of all things is at hand. Do we agree with that? I mean, yes, only Patrick does. The end of all things is at hand. Now, imagine this. Peter wrote this how long ago? Was it last week when the election started? No, it was a long, it was a couple thousand years ago, right? And even then, Peter believed it, right? Even through the Gospels, Jesus tells us that nobody knows the hour of when, when the Lord's coming back, right? And there's a reason behind it, right? There's a reason because we are to live in such a way that we believe he's coming back every single day. I think often we try to, I mean, before this election, before, like in the middle of this pandemic, one of Whitney's friends was talking to her, I'm just share this briefly, was talking to her and, and she shared with Whitney that she thought Jesus was coming back in September. And this was like July that she said that, right? And this happens often where we try to predict when Jesus comes back. Like, oh man, well, 2020 is probably the worst year we've all been through. Surely he's coming back in January, right? Or he's gonna come back before, you know, uh, the election happens or before this happens or, you know, there's, there's organizations and cults out there that will try to predict, you know, that Jesus was coming back, you know, in the year 2000 or uh, the big thing I think was December 2012, right? That, that Jesus, that was everywhere, right? And I, and I remember her telling me that, that she said that, well, Jesus is going to come back in September and here we are in November, right? So <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to be September because she said it was September because no man knows. But here's the thing. We try so hard sometimes to think, well, this is it. This is surely it. This is when he's coming. I don't believe we're to really think of, okay, let's try to figure it out. It's a, Jesus wants us to live day by day with the expectation that he is coming back, right? As we were taking communion, one of the things that we do as we take communion is what? We look forward for the return of the Lord, right? It is a, 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 an expectation that he might come back at any moment. Now, how does that change the way that I live and do things? It completely changes, right? It's like when you're home alone and your parents are gone and they told you, look, look, son, look, daughter, we'll be back in the morning at 8 a.m. And this is like, you know, at night, at 8 o'clock at night. So you got 12 hours. Well, you know, our flesh is going to be like, well, I got 12 hours to pretty much do whatever I want. I'll probably stop around 7 o'clock so that I have an hour to clean up and, and make sure, right, because I know the expectation that they're coming at 8. But if your parents said, hey, we're going to go out and we'll be back at any time, what are you going to do? You're going to act and respond a little bit differently, right? You're not going to be lackadaisical. You're not going to try to, you, you don't know when they're coming back. They could come back at any time. And so in the same sense, Jesus doesn't tell us when he comes back because we're to live in the expectation that he comes back at every time, that we're, we're to be found doing what he has called us to do, to live holy and morally, and not trying to seek the grace and the forgiveness of, of, of him at the last second, right? Because that's not right. That's, that's, a, that's using God for who he is and not loving him for who he is. Or it's, it's using God for what he can give you rather than loving him for who he is, Right? So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And Romans, listen, Romans 13, 11 and 12 says this. And Paul is saying this. He says, and do this, 
knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Whether Jesus is coming back today or not, every day that passes, you are closer to being with him. Right? I mean, essentially, we're all counting down the days until we die, right? Isn't that how life pretty much works? So every single day, your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He says in verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, the same thing that Peter's been saying, and let us put on the armor of light. Let's, be fa- let's wake up. Let's know that salvation, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, and let's be found doing what is right. Let's be found doing what is right. Look, life, as, Peter, as uh, James said, is but a vapor. Jesus tells us that uh, we're not, we're not uh, expected tomorrow, right? That we can't boast in tomorrow. We don't know. So as we prepare for the end to come, okay, whether it's the end of your life or it's the return of Jesus, what do we do? What are the, some of the things that we're called to do? Well, Peter tells us here in these four verses, the first thing is that we're to be serious and watchful in our prayers. First of all, I guess the question for us in this room is, do we pray? That's a simple question. If we don't pray, well, then obviously we're not serious and watchful in our prayers because we don't pray. It's kind of like what we learned yesterday at men's breakfast. Uh, one, of the, one of the hindrances to your prayers and receiving answers, what do you think the biggest hindrance to you receiving answers to your prayers? What do you think the biggest hindrance is? Not praying. Isn't that funny? Matt actually says that. It says, you have not because you ask not. Well, we talk about praying and we think that we have prayed, but we really haven't even approached God and asked for it it, or asked from him, right? So in the same sense, we can't be serious and watchful in our prayers if we actually don't even pray. And that's a challenge for you guys, right? Do we pray? And then I guess the next question is, what, what do our prayers look like? Is it just... You know, the typical, you know, thank you, Jesus, for this day, and thank you for my food, amen, right? Or are we really approaching God like he's not a genie, but, or it's, you know, a, a, a command, or it's, you know, a thing I have to do, but it's a thing that I want to do, that I want to know, that I'm approaching the, the, the throne of grace boldly, because I know who sits on it, that I'm, I'm approaching a God who is holy and perfect and just. He's the creator of all things, but he also cares and he also listens, right? And so one of the things as I pray, and Peter tells us here is that I need to be watchful and I need to be, what was the other thing? Serious. These two words remind me of another verse in the Bible. Anybody guess? First Peter 5, 8. Anybody know it? Be sober and be vigilant. Sober and vigilant, right? Serious and watchful. Those words are pretty much interchangeable, right? To be sober, to be serious. What does it mean to be sober? What does it mean to be serious? It means to be in one's right mind, to exercise self-control. How are we in one's right mind? Well, what are some of the things that, that can hinder us from being in our right mind? lot of things, right? 
a lot of things. It's not just drugs. I think the first thing we get to has, is drugs that we think of. It's not just alcohol. It's not just consuming something within your body. It can even be something that you consume with your ears and your eyes, right? Maybe it's, you know, everything that's happening in the world. It's, it's being influenced by culture. It's being influenced by uh, movies and video games. Something that doesn't allow us to think soberly. Something that doesn't allow us to think upon what is truth. And so Peter reminds us in, uh, in verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like what? Roaring lion, seeking whomever he may devour. And so knowing that, he, that he's out there, and that's his purpose, and knowing that the end is near, Peter tells us we need to be serious. We need to be sober. We need to have the mind of Christ. That we are able to put on the mind of Christ. That we have been given his Holy Spirit. And he says to be watchful in your prayers. We need to be watchful in our prayers. Listen, serious and watchful praying is necessary. Or we will not be ready for what's to come. So as we continue in our text, look. As we continue, we see that living in the end times also calls for us to do what is in verse 8. To have fervent love. Now, when's the last time Peter mentioned fervent love? Because this is the second time he's mentioned it. Anybody remember? I'm asking because I forgot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 22. Turn really quick. One page, probably. Peter says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently, with a pure heart. In the same sense, he says here, and above all things, right? One of the, mo the most important thing, above all things have fervent love for one another. So as the end draws near, as your time draws near, one of the things that you need to be serious about is not just your prayers, but secondly, above all, is your fervent love for one another. Now, can that be seen right now, today, in this room? Do you think, could you say that we see that and that you're exemplifying that, the fervent love for one another? Yes or no? Probably not. Remember, you guys look pretty miserable when you walked in here. Some of you guys walk in here and then you leave. And that's your choice, okay? I'm, but I want to challenge you. If you love Jesus, that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. We're to love one another fervently, regardless of our age, regardless of our background, regardless of anything other than that we both love Jesus and we're, we both have the Holy Spirit of God. So we're to fervently love one another. Fervent means to, to constantly and earnestly love one another. And, and what is the second greatest commandment that God gave us? I mean, there's only two commandments that God gave us as Christians. The first one was what? To love God, right? That's, I mean, that's pretty obvious. And the second one was what? What? Love people, love others, right? I mean, isn't like the golden rule in school, like in elementary school, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated, you know, love others, right? That's exactly what Jesus told us, that we're to love one another. But then Jesus gave us a new commandment as Christians in the Gospels, as disciples of him, and he said what? 
change it up a little bit, but still love one another, but in a different way. Yes. Not as yourself. Yes. He does say love your enemies. You guys are as I have loved you. That was the first commandment. The second commandment, the great commandment, to prove that we are his disciples is to love one another the way that he has loved us. Now, he's loved us more than I've loved myself, right? Like He's the one that laid down his life. And so this type of love that we're to have for one another is the laying down of our lives. This isn't saying so much as, you know, if you see somebody standing on the road and a bus is coming and you push them out of the way and you take their place and get hit and die, right? That's not really so much the sacrifice that Jesus is trying to, to get from you, of laying down your life for your brother, right? It's not jumping in front of a bullet for your friend, right? Now, if you do that, that's pretty awesome, okay? But really what Jesus is talking about is a, a humility and a sacrifice of dying to your own will and needs and wants, right? That's love. Love is putting the other person ahead of you, right? Isn't that love? And that's a challenge for all of us, whether we're in this age group or we're in that age group, or we're even in the little tiny kids, right? That we're to love one another fervently. And that's a proof of our discipleship of him, to love one another, laying down of our lives. You know, if you see somebody struggling to, to pick something up, right? What should you do? Watch them and see if they can do it and see if, watch them laugh at them through the struggle. Well, go help them. Right? If somebody is, you know, missing a few bucks, we'll give them a few bucks. I'm, I'm trying to come up with just some generic examples of how we can literally lay down our lives, not literally, but we can lay down our lives for others. That we can sacrifice some of the things of our own self for the sake of others. That we're to fervently love one another. That's the most important thing that we can do here in our body. To love one another fervently. And then Peter goes on to say, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.14 says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's awesome. What keeps us close and knit together is not just the unity of the Holy Spirit, but it's our, our intent and our purpose of loving one another. It is the bond of perfection. It is the bond of perfection. When he says love will cover a multitude of sins, I believe that Peter here is quoting Proverbs 10, 12 when he talks about love covering all sins. Now to cover sin and a love that covers sin is not a type of love that, you know, where I see, okay, I'm going to pick on Elisha since he did announcements. Where I see Elisha sinning, right? I see him doing something wrong and my love towards him is, well, I don't want to call him out and make him feel bad, Right? So I'm not going to say anything, and we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen. Hopefully, he just gets better and doesn't do it anymore, right? Like, I, do, I, don't, I don't want the conflict. I don't want to, you know, step over my, my boundary and, and, and make him feel uncomfortable or do this or that. I don't want him to not like me, you know, like, is ignoring sin, is that love? Does that cover up sin? Is that what that means? No, no, it doesn't. The, the first thing that the Bible tells us to do is when we see a brother in sin is to do what? We slap him. To pray for them. To pray for them. Right? And 1 John tells us that. that we're, when we see a brother in sin, 
the first thing that we should do is pray. But a love that covers the multitudes of sin is a love that forgives. Right? A love that forgives. And I think Peter tells us this because although our goal is to love one another and, and provide this bond of perfection, but it doesn't always happen because we're sinners. And so sometimes there's, you know, Sarah does something to me that I don't like, or I do something, you know, to Luke that he doesn't like, or, you know, I hurt him in some, some type of way, whether it's purposeful or not, that just happens. And so sometimes we need to, to love one another in such a way that we're able to forgive, regardless if the other person is trying to seek for, you know, is try, it, regardless if the other person uh, apologizes or not. Right? Sometimes our forgiveness is based upon, you know, well, do I really see like that they're, that they're sorry? You know, they need to prove it before I'm going to forgive them. So part of our love is showing that forgiveness before they are to prove it. Right? Didn't Jesus Christ die for us while we were still sinners? Right? James 5, 19 through 20 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So to cover sin doesn't mean to ignore it, but what James suggests is that fervent love does what is necessary to restore and forgive a sinner. We're to have fervent love for one another as we're living in the end times, as the end is drawing near. This, the other thing that we're to do is the next verse in verse 9, be, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. What does it mean to be hospitable? The word here, it literally means a love of strangers and is normally used in reference to kindness to those we don't know. But as Peter's writing this, it's not so much strangers, it's to people that we do know, right? It's to our brothers, it's our sisters, people we know. So, if we're to, as somebody said earlier, if we're to love our enemies, how much more are we to love those that aren't our enemies, right? If we're to be hospitable to a stranger, how much more are we to be hospitable to one another? Now, what does it mean to be hospitable? Like, how would you define hospitality? I think this would pretty much go, in essence, with the word love. It would go with the proof of our faith through works, right? When James talks about, look, if a brother or sister is in destitute, in need of something, and they come to your door and they knock and they say, hey, you know, let's just say they're butt naked, right? Or they got like a little loincloth, so it's not weird, right? But, but it's like 20 degrees out, and they're in need of something, and, the, and you answer the door and you say, well, I'll be praying for you, and you got like 13 blankets on, like, I'm praying for you. I, you know, I hope you find and provide what you need, you know, and, and be gone and go in peace, right? And Peter's like, or James is like, that's not faith, or that's not works that is accompanied by a faith in God. He says, if you have faith in God, then good works are to accompany it. And so if a brother does come like that, well, then you give them what they need, even if it's the shirt off of your back, right? To be hospitable, to lay down your life, for the other person. And now as we do it, one of the key things of being hospitable that, that uh, Peter challenges us with here is that we're to do it without a begrudging spirit. 
right? We're to do it without grumbling. You know, to be able to sacrifice the things that we have to give to others and to do it without grumbling. That's a hard thing to do, right? First, it's hard to give things. The second, on top of that, it's going to be even harder to do without grumbling. But unless we are walking in the Spirit of God, it's going to be impossible. So the only way we can do this is by placing your brother or your sister higher than your earthly possessions so that you can show hospitality without grumbling. In verses 10 and 11, Peter says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, each one of us, if, if, if we're in Christ and we're born again, we are valuable. Well, you're valuable anyways, right? That's what the gospel tells us. But you have a valuable service to one another if you're a part of the body of Christ. You have a valuable service. By the grace of God, which is manifold, as Peter says, which means it's multifaceted, there are various ways that you can serve God. That you and I, we're if if we're we're all considered ministers, right? And the one of the things I love that we study through Exodus with the priests, and when God ordained them as priests, the Levites, he says, What you're gonna do is you're gonna minister unto me. Right? Like in, in just so you know, minister is just a fancy word of saying, like, serving, right? You're going to serve me. And that's, that's our goal, is to serve God. Even though we may be serving others as we're doing it, like the priests, ultimately they did it to serve God. And so you and I, we are of value to serve one another within the body, but ultimately we have to think, well, first and foremost, I'm serving God. Because we don't want to be a people pleaser, right? We want to be a God pleaser. But as we please God, we also serve people in the midst of that. So we are valuable in our service towards one another if we are good stewards, right? Isn't that what Peter says here in verse 10? As good stewards, that we're to minister it to one another as we received a gift. What is a good steward? Well, it's an accountable servant, somebody who can be found faithful. Right? 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Are you a good servant if you're not faithful? Can you, be good, can you be a good employee if you're not faithful? I mean, imagine your first job. I mean, how many of you guys have jobs? Okay, about a handful, seven of you. Okay. How many of you have, have had a job at one point or another in your life where somebody was your boss? Now, for those of us that have jobs, we, we understand through experience. For those of us that never had jobs, now imagine getting your first job, right, and showing up late to your shift or whatever you're doing pretty much every day. You think so? You think, you think you'd get fired? You just showed up whenever you, you did. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> My internet wasn't working. You think, I honestly, you would get fired, right? Because you are not committed and you're not faithful, right? In the same sense as us serving, we have to be found faithful. Listen, you could have all the gifts in the world, 
You could have all the abilities in the world, but if you're not faithful, then you're not useful. If, you, if you're not available, then you're not useful. If you're not present, then you can't do anything, right? So it's important that you, as a steward, as a servant of God, towards God first and foremost, that you be found faithful. And one of the things that we look for in our church, for those that are serving, and, and if anybody ever wants to be a part of, you know, any type of leadership, that one has to be found faithful, right? Can you be faithful in the little things? Can you, right? I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you with this. I'll give you this example. Life has changed. Ministry has changed for me, okay? A, a, a lot of turnover within our church with different types of different people, different numbers. Uh, this past year, let's say a year ago, we were doing 70 kids strong every Sunday morning, right? Kids faithfully coming. We, we had youth nights all the time, Bible studies. I mean, I remember when we did discipleship, we had too many kids coming, right? And, and God really showed me that, look, this wasn't about you, Jeffrey. That was all about me. And I needed you to be faithful in the big things, okay? When things were going well, when things felt like it was going well, when you had good attendance, when you had good numbers, right? And now God's showing me the same thing, that, that things have completely changed, and we're doing a Bible study on Friday mornings with our high school guys, and one kid's showing up every week. It's, it's a completely different change. And yet God's still showing me that, Jeffrey, it doesn't matter. You still need to be found faithful, not just in the big things, but also in the little things, right? That I can, I, it's not about what or anything. It's about, look, can I be found faithful in whatever God has placed before me, right? A steward is to be found faithful. And so many times we base our faithfulness off of experiences or situations or circumstances and God says look none of that matters I mean imagine Noah when he built the ark right and he's and he's preaching the gospel and he's telling people what's happened what's going to happen and nobody listened right nobody listened who cares he was found faithful unto God because he did exactly what God told him to do if nobody listened, that wasn't Noah's fault. He did what he was supposed to do. I think of Isaiah, right? I think of Elisha, or Elijah, not, El, not El, Elisha. Well, I can think of Elisha, but Elijah, right? And, and he was continued to be found faithful. In Romans chapter 12, 3 through 8, Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think soberly, as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. Whereas we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of uh, one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Basically, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that we all have a part to play in serving one another. My role looks a little bit different than your role. Is it better? Is it more, of more value? Is it? No. Is it? No. Right? I just It just looks different. I'm just as much a part of the body 
as you are, right? Just as much, and, and we need every single part of the body to function to be useful. I mean, there's a reason that we are created the way that we're created, right? There's a reason, because every single part has a purpose. You may be thinking, well, what about the pinky? Like, you could live without that. Well, yeah, of course you could, right? I, I get that. But there's a purpose that you were designed to have a pinky. There's a purpose to it, right? So we are to serve one another regardless of where we're serving and we're to do it faithfully. And Peter says here in verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. So he says, look, if you're going to speak, one of the things I want you to speak as you're ministering, as you're together and a part of the body of Christ, is not just to speak anything, which is going to happen anyways, but to purposefully speak the oracles of God. What does that mean? What are the oracles of God? The words of God. To speak only what God has revealed himself. And what has God revealed? What are the words that God has revealed to us? The ones that we're reading, right? To, to speak those words to one another because it is those words that we base and live our life off of because they are life-giving. And they're here to, to rebuke us, right? They're here to encourage us and to point us and show us what is the truth. And he says, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And so as we serve one another, we don't do it in our own flesh and our own power. We do it with the power that is supplied by God, that we do it with his grace, that we do it with his Holy Spirit. And an example I think of is Paul, when he was given the thorn in the flesh, remember he prayed three times for it to be gone, and God said, what? No, you're going to still have it, right? Like, whatever it was, whatever thing it was that he had, he still had it. But what it did to Paul is it, it humbled him and allowed him to completely and fully trust in God and his power alone. Because God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, right? In your weakness, my strength is perfected. So as we serve one another, we don't do it in our own strength, we do it in his strength. And that comes by us humbling ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. Otherwise, listen, if we try to do spiritual things in the flesh, we're not gonna get anywhere right? It's kind of like trying to be Peter when he's fighting the guy off and cutting his ear off. And Peter says, look, or Jesus says, look, man, we don't fight this, you know, in the physical. We don't fight this with swords. He's like, we, we fought it earlier when you didn't join me when I asked you to pray, right? We fight the spiritual with the spiritual. So Peter goes on to say that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So as the end draws near, we do these things. We partake in these things. And we do it because it glorifies Jesus Christ. It glorifies Jesus Christ. Because to him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So with this recognition, listen, I'll close here. We should carefully develop prayer that is serious and alert and watchful. A love that is fervent and forgiving. A hospitality that is gracious, right? Without grumbling. And a service, and a serving unto one another and to him, most importantly, that glorifies God.
right, as the end draws near. Because it's drawing near, even though you're only 12. 16, 17, 18. 55. 56? Dude, that was close. Oh. <laughs> you had me. All right, let's pray. 